please take your Bibles and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, the motivation for this message was uh, when Andy told me that he was going to uh, be doing I Have Seen the Light, uh, uh, that beautiful, beautiful song that relates the story of the wise men uh, visiting uh, baby Jesus, and, uh, and that prompted me to uh, focus on that uh, this morning. And the title for my message, you'll notice in the sermon notes, uh, is We Have Come to Worship Him. And uh, that is a quote that is taken directly from uh, verse 2 of Matthew chapter 2, which reveals the motive of the magi, as they were called, or wise men, uh, for taking their journey to Bethlehem uh, to visit baby Jesus, the newborn king. Uh, I think we would all uh, uh, admit there are probably few Bible stories as well known as uh, this one, uh, but it has become clouded in myth and speculation as uh, most of the focus is often placed on trying to answer questions uh, that are not answered uh, in the biblical text. Uh, questions like, how many wise men were there? The Bible doesn't really tell us there were three. Uh, we typically have uh, thought that traditionally, but we really don't know what were their names, uh, we're not given that information in the biblical text. What countries or countries did they come from? Uh, what was their mode of transportation? We always envision camels, and that is a possibility, but we're not told that in the biblical text. And we're not told how they associated the star that they saw uh, with the birth of Christ as king of the Jews. Uh, to be honest, uh, I'll let you know up front, I can't answer any of those questions. Uh, with any absolute certainty, and no one else has uh, either. And my point is, let's not get so caught up in questions that we cannot answer, that we miss the sheer, simplistic beauty of this story, and what we can learn from the wise men about how to worship Christ. So first, let's just simply review the story itself, and then you'll see there in your sermon notes we'll briefly run through uh, seven lessons that we can learn about worship uh, from the wise men. Uh, so follow along in uh, your Bible, and let's first read uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Well, we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, who are the Magi? Or we often use the term wise men. Historically, the Magi first appeared in the 7th century B.C. as a tribe of people within the Median nation, which was in eastern Mesopotamia, which was considered the, or the cradle of civilization. This is where you would find the Tigris-Euphrates River. This is where you would find Ur, the birthplace of Abraham, the ancient city of Babylon. Uh, the name Magi then became associated with the hereditary priesthood uh, within that tribe. Uh, they became very skilled in astronomy and astrology, which were uh, very... Uh, closely associated in that day, and they were involved in occult practices, 
uh, sorcery and were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. Uh, we get our word magic or magician uh, from this uh, word magi uh, that they were called by. As time went on, uh, because of their combined knowledge of science and agriculture, mathematics and history and the occult, their religious and political influence grew until they became the most prominent and powerful advisors in both the Pedo-Persia uh, Pedo uh, and Babylonian empires. Uh, they are mentioned in Esther uh, chapter 1 as the most influential advisors to the Persian king, and we find them also in the book of Daniel as among the highest-ranking officials of Babylon. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel is actually made ruler over all the wise men in Babylon. You remember why? Because he was able to interpret the king's dream uh, when the magi, when the wise men uh, failed to do so. You'll also remember on that occasion that the king was about to put all the wise men to death because of their failure, and he would have done so if it had not been for Daniel's intervention on their behalf. Uh, therefore, you can imagine uh, the place of great respect uh, Daniel had with the wise men. And it seems certain Daniel would have taught them much about God and the coming Messiah who would establish God's kingdom on earth. As you move forward in history, uh, the Magi's influence continued in the Greek and Roman empires and especially in the country of Parthia which would have been part of old uh, Persia or, or modern-day Iran. Uh, and this is very significant because the Parthenians gained control of Palestine and they were not driven out until 37 B.C. by the Romans. As in Daniel's day, once again, uh, you can see the opportunity for Jewish and biblical influence among the Magi. And uh, very specifically, they would have been exposed uh, to the prophecies of the coming Messiah, Messiah and King. We also know that at the very time of Christ's birth, uh, there was a large settlement of Jews in Babylon, uh, where many of the Magi would have been. And again, you see this opportunity for biblical influence upon this group. Uh, now, going back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, how did the Magi associate the birth of the promised King with the star they saw in the sky, we're not told. Uh, and we cannot say for certain. But it's obvious that God, in some way, gave them insight. And by the way, since the Bible does not identify the star, we cannot be uh, dogmatic. Uh, but it may have been the glory of the Lord. Uh, the same glory that brilliantly shined uh, around the shepherds uh, when the angels announced His birth. Uh, throughout the Bible, we see God's glory uh, manifest itself as a brilliant light, and it's described like the sun shining in its strength. Also, Matthew uh, chapter 2 does not say uh, that the star remained. Uh, verse 2 simply says they saw the light, apparently at the time of Jesus' birth, and then seeing that as a sign of the promised Jewish king's birth, they did the logical thing. They traveled to the capital city of the Jews. They traveled to Jerusalem believing that that would be the most likely place to find the Jewish newborn king. 
On arriving in Jerusalem, they asked, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And can you imagine their shock when not a single Jew knew what they were even talking about? Now read with me verses 3 through 8 as we continue the story. Verse 3 through 8. And when Herod the king heard it, uh, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. They simply quote the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5. For so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, and by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then, Israel, uh, then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Notice Herod was troubled because he saw the birth of Jesus as a potential threat uh, to his rule. Herod, uh, just to let you know a little bit about this man, he was a great, great military commander. He was a very skilled orator. He was a very clever uh, politician, a brilliant economist, a magnificent builder. But for all of his good traits, those were overshadowed by his insatiable hunger for power and his literally insane cruelty. He did not simply eye Uh, keep his eye on competition or keep his eye on threats, he basically took them out. He killed them, including his favorite wife, he had many, and uh, and three of his sons. Uh, And this is why after the visit of the Magi, uh, he had all the male infants in Bethlehem uh, killed. Another example of just how crazy this man was is before his death, he, he knew he was about to die. And one of his last orders prior to his death was that uh, his soldiers would round up all the most distinguished citizens of the city of Jerusalem and put them in, in prison. And then he gave orders that the moment he died, Herod died, that all of those prisoners would be executed. And you say, why in the world would he do that? Because he knew not a single soul would mourn his death. So he wanted to ensure that there would be mourning throughout Jerusalem uh, when he died. Uh, When the Magi arrived, Herod, as you saw, had two fundamental questions. Uh, Hey, where was this new king born? And when was the precise time uh, that you saw the star in the sky? And why those two questions? Well, pretty obvious. His plan was to what? Murder the newborn king. Therefore, he needed to know where uh, Jesus was, and he needed to know approximately how old he would be. Uh, The chief priests and scribes answered the first question by quoting the prophecy from Matthew 5, uh, verse 2, that the child would be born in Bethlehem. And although the text does not state that the uh, the Magi's answer to the second question, we can assume, we can conclude that they indicated they saw the light approximately two years earlier. Why? Because Herod ordered the killing of all male infants two years old or under to ensure, from his perspective, the death of the newborn king. And, of course, yes, this also means the Magi's visit to Jesus was long after his birth. Uh, 
Herod sent the Magi on their way, asking them what? To uh, report back to him when they found the newborn king, uh, because he too wanted to come and uh, worship him, which of course cloaked his true intent, which was to discover and kill the child. Now look at me at the concluding verses of this beautiful story, verses 9 through 12. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Uh, notice when the Magi began their way to Bethlehem, uh, which was just six miles south of Jerusalem, the star or the light appeared again. Uh, and it, we're told that the light literally went before them and led the way until it came and rested over the home where Christ, uh, Mary, and Joseph were staying. Uh, and this is another reason why uh, it's possible that the star was not a physical heavenly body, but the Shekinah glory of God that actually moved in front of them and led them to Christ like the pillar of fire uh, led the children of Israel in the wilderness. Now that they have arrived at the home uh, where they find Christ, look at your sermon notes and let's uh, look at seven lessons that the Magi or the wise men uh, can teach us about worshiping Christ. And the first one is this. The one great goal or objective of God is to bring all the world's people groups to Christ to worship Him. That's the first truth we can gather in this story. It's a beautiful truth. The one great goal of God, His, his great objective, His great passion is to bring all the world's people groups to Christ uh, to worship Him. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, we read, We saw His star in the east, and we have come to worship Him. Right from the beginning of Christ's life here on earth, we discover that Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, but for all the peoples of the earth. What does it say in John three sixteen? For God so loved the what? The world that He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, the fact that Jesus, the Messiah would come to make a salvation available to all the peoples of the earth was actually prophesied throughout the Old Testament. One example that you see there in your notes, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 2 and 3. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. And the nations, notice, the nations of the world will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Uh, John 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I have come as light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. And then look at Matthew 24, verse 14. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in what? The whole world for a witness to all the nations. Now the fact that God's one great goal is to bring all the world's people groups to Christ is seen clearly uh, when you come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Re Revelation. 
uh, when you see how all history ends. Now, these verses are not in your sermon notes, but in Revelation chapter 5, we see all of redeemed humanity, all of redeemed humanity throughout all the ages, they gather at the throne, and this is what they are singing to Jesus. Worthy art thou to take the book to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and you did purchase for God with thy blood, notice, men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, this gives me one more opportunity to stress the importance of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. I have shared with you before that the mission effort conducted by our denomination is the largest, most intense in the world. And there is a new focus on reaching the unreached people groups of our world. Those people groups, those nations, those areas of the world where less than 2% of the population would be evangelical Christians. And so we do need to step to the plate, not only as a church, but as a denomination, uh, to support our missionaries in this renewed effort to reach every tribe, to reach every tongue, to reach every nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the second lesson that we can learn about worship from the wise men. To worship Christ is to submit to Him as the supreme eternal authority. To worship Christ is to submit to Him as the supreme eternal authority. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born, what? King of the Jews. The scribes, religious leaders, they provide the answer. From Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is quoted in Matthew 2, 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, for out of you shall come forth, notice, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That passage goes on to say in verse 2 and verse 4, His goings forth, referring to this king, referring to this ruler, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He will be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, whoever this king is... He's always existed. He's the God who was and is and always will be. This is not just going to be an ordinary man, but a man from heaven. A a God that left heaven to become man, to bring salvation to us. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 11. This was the message the angels gave to the shepherds, which emphasizes the same truth. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is what? Christ the Lord, the one who is your authority. What we discover here is that true worship always acknowledges that Christ is king and submits to him. Anything that calls itself worship that doesn't lead to submitting to Christ, to obeying him, to following him, totally devoted to him, is a deception. It's false worship, because in true worship, there's always the acknowledgement, always the submission to Christ as kings. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, what? By the mercies of God, to present what? Your life as a living sacrifice, 
And it goes on to say, which is what? Your reasonable act of spiritual worship. That's your motivation because of who he is, why he came to this earth, what he accomplished for you through his death, burial, and his resurrection. Now you're to reciprocate, you're to respond, you're to lay down your life on that altar of the cross where he laid down his life. For what purpose? That you would not be, that passage goes on to say, to be what? Conformed or squeezed into the mold of this world's thinking, into this world's values or character or conduct. But you're to be transformed in order that you might what? Prove that you might do what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So at the very heart, at the very essence of true worship is submitting to the authority of God. You realize I live to serve His agenda, not my agenda, and I live to seek His approval, not to gain the applause of others, but to seek His approval to put Him on display, to put Him on display. And that leads us to our third truth about worship. To worship Christ is to ascribe to Him unequaled glory, honor, and power. To worship Christ is to ascribe to Him unequaled glory, honor, and power. We read in verse 11 of the Matthew 2 account, And they came into the house, and they saw the child with Mary as worship, and they what? They fell down. And they fell down to do what? To worship Christ. To put His worth, to put His value center stage. To exalt Him, to magnify His greatness. And again, we see the same thing as you come to the last book of the Bible. Look there at Revelations 4, verses 10 and 11. The 24 elders, which we believe represent the church, will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, what is the application? What is the application to you and I today? Worship. Listen now, worship always recognizes the infinite worth and value of, of Jesus Christ and therefore is willing to give up everything to know and to follow Him. Jesus is to be our first and foremost love. He is to be our greatest passion and pursuit in life. I mean, what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? That you're to love the Lord your God with all what? with all your might, soul, strength, and heart, with everything. In other words, you're to give Him your undivided attention, you're to give Him your undying affection, and you're to give Him your uncompromising allegiance. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul expresses not some sort of extraordinary act of worship, but what should be the normal attitude and practice in worship. He said, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value. Notice the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And compared to Jesus, he's saying, I count them but rubbish in order that I might or, uh, uh, gain Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he expresses this intense desire to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, to be made conformable to his death, to know the power of the resurrection, to forget what lies behind, whether it's mistakes, failures, or successes, and to look forward, to press forward towards that prize of the high calling that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the fourth lesson that we can learn about worship from the wise men. 
And I believe this is a very, very important point. To worship Christ, yes, it is to submit to his authority, and it is to ascribe him worth out of a heart, but it's to do all of that out of a heart that finds its joy in him. In other words, worship is submitting to his authority, describing to him worth, but we do that from a heart filled with joy, gratitude, and appreciation. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, concerning the wise men, it says, And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with what? With great joy. Yes, again, worship submits to Jesus. It describes him worth, but it's not, we don't do that out of duty. We do not do that out of routine. I hope you don't come to church just because you do it out of duty or you you believe you're obligated to come. I hope you're here because you want to be here, because you love Jesus and you delight in gathering with God's people to give Him the praise and the worship and the adoration and obedience that He deserves. Look at Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2. This describes the appropriate attitude in worship, whether it's on a personal level or corporate level. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with what? Gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. And then I love 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for His what? Indescribable gift. In other words, how can any person focus long on who Jesus is, His majesty, His beauty, His worth, on who He is, what He did for us, and not have your heart ignited with joy and gratitude and appreciation for this indescribable gift that then motivates a heart to submit to Him, to follow Him, to ascribe to Him the glory and the honor and the power that is due Him. Look at the fifth lesson we learn about worship. To worship Christ is to delight in presenting Him with sacrificial gifts. In other words, it's out of a heart that's just overflowing with love. We, we, I mean, we all understand this. I mean, think when you fell in love and, and just your intense desire to express that love and, that, and how creative you would try to get in expressing that love and how many times you'd go uh, beyond the call of duty uh, in order to show this person how special they are to you and how much you cherish them. Uh, And this should be true of us as well. Notice concerning the wise men and opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And let me look at this beautiful example in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Before I read it, just a little bit of background. He's, he's, He's talking about the churches in Macedonia who were suffering terrible affliction. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were just struggling to survive, struggling to make ends meet. And as Paul was traveling, ministering to these Gentile churches, he was collecting an offering for Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were suffering a terrible drought and famine. But when he came to Macedonia, Paul thought, No way I'm going to ask these Macedonian churches to participate in this offering because they don't have anything to give. I mean, they're just struggling to survive. I mean, their lives are at risk on a daily basis. They're in jeopardy. Well, these Macedonian churches, they discover what Paul's doing. So they come to Paul, and they literally beg Paul for the opportunity to give to this offering despite their circumstances, to express their worship to Jesus and to aid their brothers and sisters in faith in Jerusalem. And notice this is what he says about them. This was their testimony. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, In great ordeal of affliction, 
their abundance of joy. How do you express joy in the abundance of affliction? Because they were rooted and grounded in a love for Jesus. And although their circumstances might change, Jesus would never change. Jesus would never fail them. And Jesus was at the heart of their joy. Their joy wasn't rooted in their circumstances, but Christ who lived within them. And then it says, in their deep poverty overflowed. And the wealth of liberality, that doesn't even make sense. Deep poverty overflowing into the wealth of liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Would you circle that phrase, beyond their ability? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever given to God beyond your ability? Now, I'm not trying to say this is going to be an everyday occurrence. Just like, not necessarily every day do I give Kathy some extravagant gift. But because of my love for Kathy, there are those times where you're just motivated to go over and above and do something very, very special. And you know, the Bible says we're, we're, we're to give not out of what we don't have, but what out of we have. And we're to give proportionally to, to what God has provided provided us, but at the same time, folks, I think in a relationship with Christ, as you grow and you deepen with Him, and your love deepens with Him, and your worship deepens for Him, as you see His values, there are those, those times where you're just motivated to do something special and to go beyond your ability, and not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but to sheer delight because you see the sacrifice he made for you and you want to reciprocate by sacrificing back to him. You had two little examples of this this past week. And I, I won't mention uh, their, their names. Uh, but two of our senior adults uh, approached me. And uh, one was a woman. Uh, both of these individuals uh, are on uh, very meager, 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 meager fixed incomes. Uh, they just barely make ends meet. And the woman came up to me, and her face was just beaming. I mean, she was just radiant. And, uh, and she, said, she said, Brother Andy, come here. I want to tell you what happened. And she said, you know, I, 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 just, you know, I, I wanted to be able to do something uh, special for the Lottie Moon offering. And, uh, and you know, I, I really don't have anything. And you know what happened, Brother Andy? She said, just the other day. I got a totally unexpected gift in the mail. And I just want you to know, I just brought my money and turned it into the church office for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Now, folks, that woman could have used that money in a lot of different ways for her own good, for her own, and would not have been wrong in doing so. The, the, the purpose in me sharing this is not to put us on a guilt trip, I want us to see that there's, that there's that aspect of worship with Jesus where I just had a sheer delight. You just want to do something special. The other individual was a man. And he said he'd been, he'd been praying about giving, didn't have any money. He's wondering, you know, God, God, how, how can I give? How can I participate? I want to participate. I want to be involved. And, and then it, it, it hit him. And he contacted his children and he said, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. This year, instead of giving me, you know, Christmas gifts like you always do, 
I'm going to ask each of you if you would make a check out to Edgewood Baptist Church for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. And that, that individual was so excited when, when God revealed that to him and his, and his children responded positively and they said that it would be glad to do that. And again, I just cite that as two little precious examples uh, that when you see the worth and the value of Jesus Christ, I mean, it, it, you're not just enjoying that. You want others to enjoy that. So, so you're willing to give. And often we do step to the plate and we give beyond our ability. We do something special. We do something sacrificial just to express our love to Jesus. Again, not out of guilt, not out of duty, but out of delight, out of a great sense of joy. Look at the sixth lesson that we learn about worship. Uh, to worship Christ is also to endure the indifference and hostility of unbelievers. Notice uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 says, And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So you have the general population just totally indifferent and apathetic about Jesus. They're just going about their lives, not even aware that he's been born. Then you have Herod, goes a little further than indifference, is outright hostility. He sees Jesus, who he is, what he stands for, his truth and principles as a threat to him and his lifestyle, and he wants to eliminate Jesus and all that would follow him. And that's going to be true of you and I. When we worship, we need to realize we are going to be met with opposition. We're going to deal with the indifference and apathy of many, many people who do not see the infinite worth and value of Jesus. And not only indifference, we will be met with hostility for those that will attack us for our faith and the truth and the absolutes that we stand for. As it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. A certainty. And then look at the seventh and final truth about worship. To worship Christ begins with come and see, but ends with go and tell. It begins with come and see. Come and see Jesus. Come and see who He is, what He's done. Put your trust, put your faith in Him. Follow Him. But it always ends with go and tell. And folks, I really believe we haven't truly worshipped until we're willing to go and tell. You know, you see this truth beautifully. Well, look first look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now, we're not told... But do you think those magi, those wise men, went home with their lips zipped? No, folks. They were telling everybody about this experience of meeting this newborn king and worshiping him and the gifts that they presented. And worship always leads. As I see his value and worth, then I realize, hey, he saved me to take him to others, to share him with others. Uh, we saw this truth probably as clearly as anywhere when we went through our study of the book of Hebrews. Let me just remind you. Remember in Hebrews 10, which is really a, a significant climax in the book, he, he talks about the fact that as believers, we have confidence, we have boldness through the blood of Jesus Christ to step right into the Holy of Holies, go into the presence of God, go to the throne of our great and faithful high priest who sits on the throne of grace and mercy that we might find grace and mercy in our time of need, that we might be helped and aided by Him. 
whether it's in temptation or whether it's in need or whatever challenge might be. So there's this beautiful focus on the fact that as believers, we have the liberty, we have the freedom 24-7, not based on our performance, not based on our works, but based on the infinite mercy of Jesus, that He bore the penalty of our sin, He canceled our sin debt, He literally imputed His righteousness to us, and so it's on the basis of that imputed righteousness that I can come into the presence of God to honor Him, to worship Him, to praise Him and worship Him. But then the book of Hebrews goes on, and it says, once you go into worship, then, Hebrews chapter 13, we're to go outside the camp to bear the reproach of Jesus, to be a witness to a lost world. So I really believe the proof of authentic worship, the proof that you've really seen the worth and the value of Jesus Christ is this intense burning desire and passion to spread that worth and value to others, to make Him known, to exalt Him, that all peoples of the earth will give Him the glory and the worth that is due Him. So yes, worship begins with come and see, but it doesn't stop there. It ends with go and tell. So lessons that we can learn from the wise men about worship. And so I pray as we go through this Christmas season uh, that you will worship Him by submitting to His authority, by ascribing Him the worth and the value that is due Him. You'll do so out of joy, realizing the indescribable gift you have in Jesus and that you'll be willing to go and tell others to share that value, to share that worth, to share that salvation with men and women, boys and girls of every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And, of course, God wants you to start right where you are because look at Luke chapter 8, verse 39. Luke 8, 39. This is what he told the demoniac after he delivered him. Go back home and what? Go back home and what? Tell people. Tell people what? How much God has done for you. So the men went all over town telling how much Jesus had done for him. And then Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my what? Witnesses. We're just to testify what Jesus did for us both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So as we extend our invitation today uh, as believers, uh, worship Him. Worship Him by submitting. Worship by getting honest, transparent, acknowledging any sin uh, so that you can leave this place knowing there's nothing between you and God, nothing between you and another person you have not sought to make right, and that you desire to follow Him because He is worthy of your obedience, worthy of your love, worthy of your adoration, and you'll do so with exceeding joy, looking for the opportunity to tell others about Him. If you're here, and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Oh, what a wonderful opportunity you have today to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as the one who left heaven and came to this earth to die for the penalty of your sin and rose again to give you new life. So I would plead with you today to turn to Jesus to ask Him to come into your heart, to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins, to take control of your life, that you might follow Him and know a wonderful adventure of faith, 
a wonderful adventure of missions in uh, following and honoring Jesus. So stand as the invitation is extended. I'll remain here. If anyone has a decision of any public nature, you'd like to unite with the church. And so let's all, though, let's all worship, let's reflect and respond on worshiping, realizing who this child is.